We've been uh, going through a series on how we try to make room for deception in our own lives. And so we construct things that we think are a more favorable reality than the way things really are. And sometimes we even try to lie to God. And I'm not going to kid you that when we do that and we try to tell God, hey, this is where I'm at and this is how I've got things ordered, we're really doing more to deceive ourselves than God. We know that God sees through those things. But we still kind of convince ourselves that maybe, maybe I can tell God this and, and it'll work that way. And so we're calling this series Fully You. And it's just owning our, our own things and bringing God uh, an authentic, genuine uh, response that isn't hindered by things that we put in the way to try and make it easier or uh, skirt things that are a little more unpleasant. One of the, li- the lies that we tell God that we're going to look at this morning is we have a tendency to tell God, you know, God, I- I've got this. Um, Kayleen and I have this ongoing conversation because you see this often on social media. When somebody's facing something hard or demanding and friends will chime in and go, hey, you got this, you got this. And it's good to be encouraging, but sometimes we just have to acknowledge, no, we don't. And in fact, we never will. There's this dimension to us where we will always need God. And so when we have the temptation to go, hey, I got this, uh, there's some way that, there's, that we're going to come up insufficient or incomplete and we have to have the Lord's help, the Lord's guidance to make up those insufficiencies and to carry us. And that's how we become dependent on God. And that's how we come to peace in God. So we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. So here's what I want you to think about. This is, this is going to be the driving thought for us this morning. God asks us to trust him, and we try to tell him that we can do it better than he can. That's the lie we tell God. God says, I want you to trust me with this. I want you to be obedient. I want you to be faithful to me in this. And we go, no, you know what? I think I can handle this, and I can do a better job than you can. Now, that's really arrogant, but that's also very honest. Usually, we don't dress it up quite that way, and we say... Lord, I'm right here and I'll take care of this. And I've got my hands on it, so it'll be okay. But when we do that, we actually lie to God when we tell him that we can actually control things. And it's a very humbling thing in life to realize how little we actually control, how little control we actually have and are able to exert. So we're going to talk a little bit this morning about control and trusting God. And in that, I want this story to guide us. It's the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. And I've, if you have your, your Bible along, you've got scripture on your phone or tablet, um, it's in Genesis chapter 37 that I'm going to start. But the story of Joseph unfolds over several chapters in Genesis. And Joseph is this kid. He is a kid who somehow gains blessing And I think particularly he gains blessing through his father. His father loves this kid. He is the son of his favored wife. Now, we don't practice polygamy today. And so, um, you know, there's a daughter of my favorite wife. And she happens to be my first wife and my only wife. And God willing, that's the way it will be till he calls me home. 
but that was not the way it was for Jacob. And so uh, if you remember the story from the Old Testament, Jacob got deceived into marrying someone he didn't love. And uh, that's a sad, sad story. And yet he stayed and he labored so that he could win his love. And he did. And he has quite a few children with his first wife. And only, only uh, Joseph with the second wife until Benjamin comes along. But here comes this son then. This is the son of my favorite wife. And this son, he, he's, you know, he's good looking like my best looking wife. <laughs> And he's talented. He's got the best of both of us. This is a kid that I'm proud of. Any parent can understand. There are times when you look in your child and you go, I, I have done the best with them. They, they, they've got it. You know, and you're proud of them. And so that's the story of Joseph. And Joseph knows it. He knows that he has his father's favor. And in fact, it's not just his father's favor. We hear that Joseph has the favor of God. So we're going to pick up the story in, in chapter 37 of Genesis. And we're going to see how this plays out between Joseph and these half-brothers of his. This is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flocks. He worked for his half-brothers. And I just want to stop there. I'm not sure of the Hebrew um, and how this, you know, the, uh, this works in the Hebrew, but in the English it seems pretty obvious that he's working for these older brothers and it's probably just a chronological thing. They're older, they're stronger, they're wiser, they've been taught how to do this and he's still learning. He's 17, they're already adults. And so he's working for his half-brothers. So you can understand the dynamic they're older, they're grown, they're married, they have jobs, and he is their assistant. So just keep that in mind in the dynamic. The, he worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. I need to apologize. I've gotten a couple of my Old Testament stories mixed up, so... If you're, if you're taking notes, you go, wait a minute. Forgive me. I caught it. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. Now I'm going to stop here because here you see the father's favor and he is playing this out and he is giving gifts to his favorite child. If you've ever been around a family where children are treated differently, you understand that sibling rivalry goes from just being a natural thing to being a, a, a huge thing. And so here comes Joseph and he's wearing the duds. I mean, he has the gear. And he shows up to his brothers in this robe that his father got him, this special, this beautiful robe. And look at me. And it gets worse from there. So that's three through five. Let's keep going. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. They couldn't say a kind word to him. One night, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him even more than ever. So you get the dynamic. This is... This is just coming apart. This is a family that is coming apart at the seams. And sibling rivalry has just escalated into outright hatred. And so you might remember what happens from there. 
Uh, he then tells his brothers, oh, and by the way, I am more important than you, and God gave me this dream, and you're going to bow down to me? I mean, this is not what you want to do to your older siblings. I have three older sisters. Take it from me. Joseph made a huge mistake. His brothers responded, so you think you will be our king, do you? You actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more. This is the third time we hear this. Because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. And then jumping down to verses 18 and 19. When Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. As he approached, they made plans to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said. Well, I want to caution you a little bit because we may... Some of you may feel like Joseph's brothers where you had a sibling or there's another person at work that's in your department or there's a friend in your friend group or your social circle. If everything goes right from they always get all the breaks and it's not me. But I just want to suggest to you for our purposes today that we put on the beautiful robe of Joseph and remind ourselves that we are people who are favored by our Father. We know what Jesus has done for us. We know the sacrifice of Christ. And we live in the blessing of being in the family of God. And our Father smiles on us. That's a true reality for every believer. You may not feel that way, but it is that way. And so... There are times when we come to live in that favor, when we live in that blessed place of God, that we come to a point where we feel a little bit superior. We've figured some things out. We, followers of Jesus, do things better than the rest of the world, and it leads us to a place where our humility kind of slips away, and we come forward in life, and we go, you know what? I serve Jesus Christ. I'm a child of the King, and that makes me better than anyone else. At least better than those who don't know Him. And so... God's favor leads us to this sense of superiority. It happens. And it's dangerous. It's really dangerous. You see, the, the promises of God that God has made to us in Scripture, the way that God has reaffirmed and reinforced those promises by the power of His Spirit to us directly and reminded us, hey, I love you, I died for you, I am living in you, that gives us a sense of peace, it gives us a sense of calm, it gives us incredible blessing, and sometimes then we take that where it doesn't belong, and we make that a reason to gloat or be proud. And in fact... You know, we see these apostles that say, hey, if I'm going to boast in anything, I'm going to boast in Jesus Christ. That's what happens. God gives us confidence. But we, at times, take that confidence and turn it into something else. And so this blessing from God, if you take it to an extreme, it can become a cause for tyranny. Now, I, I don't know if you've been paying attention to things on the news. I have not. This week, been paying close attention. And so uh, I had breakfast with our conference superintendent this week, and he goes, so have you seen all this stuff going on? I suppose you want to talk about some of these things going on. And I was completely oblivious, thank the Lord. And he got to tell me 
what was going on, and, and some of it has to do with our denomination and how we got into the national news. If you don't know about it, I'd rather not tell you. Um, it, it just kind of conflicted us. It, it didn't make us look good. It just kind of made us look at each other and go, oh, is that who we are? But in addition to that, outside of our denomination, there's a Christian leader in our country that went on mass media and thank the Lord that Hurricane Florence turned away and it was an answer to prayer because we are favored by God. And those people in another part of the Carolinas, they are doomed. <laughs> and the arrogance, the arrogance. And here's the thing. How do those other people hear that from a Christian leader who goes, God favored us and he blessed us and he spared us from this hurricane, but you guys down there, you got it on the chin, you evil heathens. How is it that God would take this out on you? And you know, there's so many assumptions in that and there's so many things that I think run contrary to the heart of Christ that cares for the lost, that pleads for the poor, that sits with those who sit in ashes or in a flood. <laughs> but we do this. We see the promises and the blessing of God everywhere, and sometimes people who are not God's people are missing out, and it hurts them. And we have this temptation to look down on the rest of humanity and go, if only you guys would figure it out. It's compounded for us as Americans because when we look around the world and we see that we are more wealthy, we're more affluent than any other nation in the history of the world, and we tend at times to attribute that to God's blessing, and we forget that some of the reason that we're the most wealthy is because of the natural resources we have and the history that we have that has garnered those resources and how we've done that, and that's a whole other issue. And we do not look humbly on our neighbor. It's like the guy that Jesus talked about when he told the story, and he said, you know, there's this Pharisee, and the Pharisee knows God, and the Pharisee knows the law of God and Scripture, and the Pharisee stands up in church and prays out loud and says, God, I thank you I'm not like that guy over there in the corner. The tax collector. And the tax collector is cowering the corner and he won't breathe a word out loud and he is praying, oh Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, who do you think is more favored? <laughs> Things got flipped over, didn't they? And it's different now. So we need to be careful because there are times where we might be tempted to take the blessing and the promises of God and use them to give us cause and reason to to step into tyranny. Tyranny might be the extreme, but to step into this place of Joseph and say to his brothers, you're going to bow down to me. I'm blessed. I'm going to be the leader. I'm going to be the one that you guys follow. And they're going, yeah, no thanks. It sure doesn't do the gospel any favors when we tell people around us just how bad they are. Most of them know. Most of them know. So I just want to remind you that as we try to exert ourselves and insert ourselves with a sense of superiority, we do bad things. And I just want to take that now a step farther and talk to you about issues of control. You see, there's an element of faithlessness 
that grows inside of us and becomes sort of symbiotic. It feeds off of and feeds into our need to control stuff. And so there's this sense that, you know, if I could have things my way, if I could just do it my way, it would go better. And if we feed that, it causes us to want to do that more and more and more. And we push people around and we become a little bit more and more abrasive when we feel like we need to be in control. You see, we, we have this notion that, you know, if God's people could just rule, we could fix everything. Now, I will agree with you to a point on that. You know, I think, I think having godly leaders is a great thing. However, we also know that when God's people are given power, it corrupts them. That's what happens. And so, yes, when you go to vote for elected officials, we want to vote for people that acknowledge God as a part of what is happening in the world around us. And yes, we want people who are humble before God, but you have to be prepared because anyone, regardless of their political persuasion or their ideology, anyone who is given that amount of power and control and has people whispering in their ear saying, you got this, you're doing great, keep going, at some point they're going to do something bad and they're going to tell themselves it was great. At some point they're going to make a mistake and they're going to tell themselves, and more importantly, they're going to tell all the rest of us, I did a great thing back there. Regardless of the unintended consequences or who it hurt or whatever, you know, I'm going to do this and I'm going to tell you how good I am at doing this. I had the benefit of uh, living in a state under a highly corrupt governor. I mean, we lived in Illinois for several years, and Illinois has a wonderful history of uh, sending their governors to retirement in orange jumpsuits. Um, you know, we just had several governors who broke the law and got in trouble. And by the way, it was both parties. Don't don't take a moment to go. I'm sure you know they voted. No, it was both parties, and and. Uh, you know, there was a joke going around when I was pastoring in Illinois that Illinois finally found a way to save money, and that is to have the governors print their license plates. Some of you don't get that. It's maybe a dated joke. You see, here's the thing. I, I, I was able to watch. I was, I was a pastor in the state capitol. I was a pastor to people who were working in the state capitol, and I was able to watch how people came to power and how power and the pursuit of power led them to do really carnal and evil and fleshly and corrupt things. And so when we're tempted to say, you know, God, if you would just let your people rule over this, let your people make the decisions, it'll all be right. Let me tell you, there's, there is always the possibility of God's people making mistakes and sinning. There is always that possibility. It is not taken away. We are still guided by God. We are still led by him, but God's people can rule badly. We can do that. So here's the thing. If we gather that much authority and exert that kind of control, and it has a tendency to go badly, we need to understand the difference between influence and control. 
I know pastors, and some of you have probably known pastors who do this, that they have an incredible degree of control. Just in the last month, I've been talking with someone I know about how they are grieving in their journey with their church because their pastors have a high degree of control. And their pastor has told her over and over again, you are wrong. You need to do what I tell you to do. You need to submit to my authority. And I finally said to her, you know, if your pastor's trying to exert that much authority, he is scared to death of something. And he is not willing to trust God to speak to you and change you and transform you. And I finally, and I rarely do this, I really try not to do this, but I finally spoke to her and I said, you need to leave there. You need to leave that because that is control. That is not influence over you. That is being in control. You see, influence is something that pushes in a direction or tries to move things in a direction but does not demand absolute conformity. Influence is something that seeks to change and transform and move in a desired direction for a desired outcome but does not seek absolute conformity. Control is when we say, I'm going to make sure this happens the way I think it needs to. I would love to be able to tell you, control does not happen in the church. But you and I know that it does. We know that it does. And it hurts. It hurts. And so we have people who... who come into leadership, and many times it's a pastor or a clergy person. Sometimes it's a strong lay leader, and they come along, and they get to the point where they go, I will tell you how this is going to go, and you are going to live with it. When I hear myself saying those words, I have tried to condition myself, and I've tried to ask God, please, Lord, give me a warning sign. Have someone slap me in the face, maybe figuratively, not literally, but somebody correct me and just go, you know, the Lord builds his church. And we are here as servants of God. And so we don't have to exert control, but we do have to bring influence to bear. And I've... I've done this a long time, and I'm still trying to understand, Lord, how can I be a person of influence without being a person of control? How can I be a person who is able to move people in a direction without having a whip in my hand? And I think maybe, for me at least, that's a lifelong endeavor to figure that out. So instead of saying, well, if God's people ruled... What if we flipped that around and said, what if God's people served? I think this is rather uninviting to us in our sense of how hierarchy works and power works in the world. But I also think that it is quite indicative of what Jesus showed us. When Jesus came to earth, his mechanisms, his ways of working with people had far more to do with influence than they had to do with control. Now, sometimes it's hard for us to differentiate that because there are times when we see Jesus speak with incredible authority and we see him exert control in other realms. 
And so we see in the story of Jesus when he comes and he declares to evil spirits, you have to leave. He doesn't go, you know what, if you guys are done with him, that, that, that person you've possessed, it would be nice if you moved on. You never hear Jesus say those words to, to uh, the demonic. He doesn't do that. When Jesus speaks with the demonic, he speaks with authority and he exerts it. He goes, you don't belong here. But when you see Jesus speaking with people, it's quite different. Even people who contradict him. So as he's speaking with the Pharisees who are trying to entrap him, he asks questions. He, he responds in ways that engage them. He is still not giving up on them. He's very frustrated with them. We see that. He expresses emotion about this. We see that. But he does not take somebody by the scruff of their neck. The closest Jesus comes that I can find in the Gospels is when Jesus comes in the last week of his life down to Jerusalem and he comes to the temple and these people have set up shop in the temple and they're doing business and commerce in the temple. And I I have to tell you, this is one of the most convoluted, difficult to understand passages in the Gospels where Jesus fashions a whip and he drives the money changers out of the temple. I think, you know, they're we're told quite literally there was a whip. And I struggle with that because that seems to be out of step with the rest of what we see of Christ in his life. But we do see that the Lord does this. And I would suggest to you, and I, you know, if you have some insight on it, you're welcome to talk to me. I know I've talked to you, a couple of you about this passage of scripture, but I would suggest to you that Christ recognizes that there's something going on here that is really demonic. We don't see it in those terms in the gospel, and so it, uh, it's a suggestion, and I'm open to other uh, input on that. But Christ comes in, and this is what is going on in the house of God where people are called to worship, and he goes, no, no, no. It doesn't work this way. Instead, we see that what Jesus does to bring influence is he heals. He heals the blind person. He heals the leper He raises back to life a couple of other people before his own resurrection. He turns water to wine just to help out at a wedding. He appeals the cause of a woman caught in adultery. And so here we see Jesus and he's doing things that benefit those who are broken. He's doing things that bring the betterment of those who have been harmed. He is serving. Now, there's this sense that we have in America that this is a part of our political system because we ask that we would have a government by the people, for the people. Oh, and of the people. But that little piece of government for the people is really, really crucial because we can look around us and see in other parts of the world where there are governments and they are not there for their nation. They're usually there for a leader who is fleecing the country, but that's another issue. So if there's faithlessness in trying to exert control because we don't believe that God will bring about his will then being faithful means having some kind of belief. And there is actual power in belief. So 
I would suggest that once we have known authority, effective authority, godly authority, we become really hungry for it. Now, uh, about two weeks ago, uh, my daughter Linnea and I, uh, she came to me and she kind of issued a challenge. She wanted to do something dietary different. And so we did this radical change in our diet. And so uh, until this weekend, for the last two weeks, I've had no sugar. And at first I was like, this is no big deal. And then one of you, and I won't tell who it was, God bless you for your generosity, but somebody came and gave me a whole plate of cinnamon rolls. And um, I looked at those things, and I, I'm telling you, my heart was drawn. I could hear the siren song of the cinnamon rolls. And I went home, and I handed them to Kayleen and, and Amanda, who's living with us. I said, you guys, dive in. Eat these up. I want to watch you enjoy them, because I am not going to do this. And I didn't eat any of the cinnamon rolls. But, you know, I, I, I wrestled with this. Every time I walked through the kitchen and I saw those cinnamon rolls there, it was like they were just going, Hank, eat me. I'm good. I'm sweet. <laughs> we always need brothers and sisters in Christ to encourage us, don't we? <laughs> they were great. They were beautiful. They were wonderful. And I had to enjoy them through another person's experience. But, but they, were, they were, and they were a blessing to our family. You know who you are. Thank you very much. But you know, here's the thing. When we understand the authority that things have over us, particularly authority that is not godly, even something as simple as sugar that has just got me going back and forth to the kitchen, looking at these things and anguishing over it. And then the converse of that, when we have experienced godly authority that influences and leads us closer to God, it is completely different and it's entirely infatuating. I love to be around people who know how to exercise godly authority because they keep us from harm and they move us in directions and at a pace that is kingdom-oriented. I love that. We have one of our bishops who, uh, all three of our bishops have announced that they're not going to stand for re-election next summer. One of our bishops is one that I particularly see in this fashion because when I'm around him, I, I listen to his words and I watch his actions and there's times when I just go, I'm with you. Tell me, I'll go anywhere with you because I believe in you and I see the kingdom work you do and I, I see how you engage other people and all you got to do is pick up the phone or drop me an email, and I'm, I'm with you, Bishop. I, I, I am drawn to that powerfully. And I have told him that, and it kind of scared him a little bit, I guess, but I recognize how he has allowed God to guide him and, and the, this wonderful authority bringing into my life somebody who stands over me and says, do it this way. It's a gift. It really is a gift. We have this sense in America that somehow you have to do this all alone. That if you're American and you're really an individualist, then what you need to do is you need to figure out your spiritual walk. You need to figure out your affairs all on your own. It's up to you to make you work. And sometimes... I say these kinds of words, oftentimes Christian leaders do these things where we kind of exercise a spiritual self-help. 
And we're not giving a full picture because there's an element where we need God to complete whatever we are about. Some of you remember, we had to learn this in, in American history and American literature, the Horatio Alger stories. You remember the Horatio Alger stories? Some of you haven't heard of them yet. Your education is incomplete. But Horatio Alger was a guy who wrote stories about young boys. It was, I think, exclusively young boys who came out of poverty and disadvantaged places and did good with their lives. And they ended up moving into places where they took care of their family and they made enough money and they turned from rags to riches kind of a thing. Now, that was sort of the, the framework. That was sort of the... Um, the model for Horatio Alger stories is you, you come out of really bad, poor, disadvantaged places and you become wealthy. And we simplified the model over time because I went back and read a little bit about this and a couple of sociologists have actually pulled apart these stories and said that that's not entirely true the way Horatio Alger would write them. And so I, I read this guy, Bob McKinnon. He's not a believer that I know of, but he refers a lot to God in his writings. Um, And um, he pulls this apart for us a little bit. So this idea that you just pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you're a self-made person, he's getting at that going, you know, basically his premise was there is no such thing as a self-made person. And he says this, in almost all Horatio Alger stories, the protagonist is aided by a small coterie of friends and strangers who help make his success possible. The themes of self-reliance and personal responsibility as a means to amassing unlimited success is no doubt an appealing story, but it is a simplified narrative that has created an indelible impression among many Americans that there is neither responsibility nor the need to take care of one another, including those who are most vulnerable among us. In fact, this guy, he goes along to pick it apart and he goes, you know, we've kind of taken this to say this is the reason I don't need to take care of disadvantaged people around me because they should have to do it on their own. And I think, and he already alludes to the, the need of responsibility in our lives, but he says, you do not do it alone. And he even looks back at these literary narratives and he goes, even in these Horatio Alger stories, they have this sense of of a group of friends. He calls it a coterie of friends. Or there's these strangers that come across their path and make the difference in getting them out of that place of poverty. You know, for some of us, when we want to say, you know, you're just going to have to do this and you're going to have to do it on your own, we're probably selling our story short. There's nothing, I don't think there's anything I've ever done that I've done on my own in all reality. I don't think there's anything I have ever done that I could say, do you see what I did? That was me. No. I have my parents to thank. You know, it's the Oscar speech. I have my wife to thank. I have my church to thank. I have the community I grew up in. I have the education I was given. There's all kinds of things that came into my life that brought this kind of influence. And the idea that I can control my own destiny, I can control my own story, is something of a lie. And let's not perpetrate that lie on other people to say, you know what, just get up and do it. Now, 
I understand. There's idleness all around us. There's people who have given up all around us, and we need to activate them, and we need to be able to do that. I understand that. But let us not try to tell them they've got to do it alone, because none of us have. In fact, I would go so far as to say, in my life, I fully believe that every step of the way, every day I have lived, every moment that has passed in my life has been a moment where God was right there in the room with me. And if that's the case, everything that I have done that is in any way noteworthy is something that I've got to say, thank the Lord. Because I could not do this alone. And not only was God in the room, but there have been a host of other saints around me. And when I acknowledge that, I realize that my role has been rather small. But here's the thing. We need to believe. McKinnon goes on to say in his article, he goes on to say that people have to believe If they no longer believe, they're done. They will never get ahead or succeed in his terms. But we need to move from believing in ourselves, and I'm going to shift gears now into the spiritual realm. We need to move from just believing in myself that I can do this to if God is with us, who can stand against us? If God is for me, who can stand against me? Too many of us cower when we have no concept that the power of God is standing right there with us and we cower unnecessarily. Too many of us capitulate because we think we don't have what it takes and God is right there beside us going, I have more than enough. And so we need to move to the sense where we have this understanding that If the Lord is in this, we must move forward. We must go with him. It's no mistake that God wanted his son, Jesus Christ, to be identified by this name, Emmanuel, God with us. Take this a little bit farther, a passage I'm sure that's familiar to most, if not all of you, when Jesus gives this great commission in Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority, there it is, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And then he says this, And surely, God is with us. I am with you always to the very end of the age. Why would he need to say that? We've got all authority. Except that the Lord knows that when we get to the end of the age, when we get to those days, we're going to go, where's God? I'm all alone on this. I've been forsaken. So I want to close with this. We should be people of powerful faith. And I preach this to myself as much as I preach it to you. We should be people of powerful faith. You see, if God is that powerful and he has been resident around us and for many of us, most of our lives inside of us, then how in the world is it that we shrink back from the challenges of the world? 
And so I would ask you these three questions. Where is God challenging you to trust him or to trust him more? Where is it? And here's a way that we can understand that. I, I think here's a way. If you want to figure out, I don't, I don't know where God's asking me to trust him more. Here's what I would suggest. Ask this question. What are you worried about? What do you worry about? Because God's saying, you don't got this. <laughs> you know you don't got this. But I have exceedingly abundantly more. And then I would just ask you this question. Where do you need to take authority in your life? Because Christ said that. Take authority. All authority has been given to me. That doesn't mean we necessarily are going to exert control, but we are not going to be hands off. Take authority exercise godly influence. And then this final one, and this is probably the hardest, where do we need to surrender control to Christ? Where do we need to say, okay, Lord, my way doesn't work, and this has to be your way. I'm telling you, as I prepared this message, (laughs) there were a hundred different thoughts running through my head. Oh, Lord, you want to tinker with that too? Oh, you don't want me to make it go that way? A hundred different thoughts going through my head. And I had to say, Lord, you're going to have to prioritize this for me because there is so much I need to hand over to you. And there's so many places where I need to put my hands on, but I want to do it in a godly way. So that is my prayer for you. And I would just ask you to respond to those questions between you and the Lord. And to say, Lord, I don't need to be in control. If I'm in control, it's an evil thing. But if you want me in authority, help me to exercise godly authority. Amen. There it is, folks. Take authority. Surrender control. Um, I want to end with this song. Um, Jackson's here this morning. And this is, for Jackson and I, these guys are one of our favorite music groups. And just a song about control. And let the Lord speak to you. Where to take control. Sorry. I spelled it wrong. Good correction. Here we go. Control. Yeah, I give you control. 